The way to think differently is to act differently and get comfortable with being uncomfortable. Welcome to the Unlearn Podcast, where host Barry O'Reilly seeks to synthesize the superpowers of extraordinary individuals into actionable strategies you can use to think big, start small, and learn fast, and find your edge with excellence. Here's your host, Barry O'Reilly. Welcome to the Unlearn Podcast. This episode, I'm delighted to be joined by Jake Knapp. Many of you may know Jake as the co-author of the fantastic book, Design Sprints, or more recently, Make Time. Now, Jake has worked with lots of interesting companies, from Oakley to Microsoft to Google, where he's been involved in some products you probably use today, such as Gmail or Hangouts. Now, on this show, we discuss what he had to go through to actually create the concept of a design sprint, and much of the things he had to learn and unlearn along the way as the process and his thinking had evolved. We dive into the real pain of failure and how you can use that not only to improve your process and your work, but also yourself. And finally, we spend time on the power of decisions and how great design sprints help deciders make better decisions in the face of uncertainty, ambiguity, and the pressure to succeed. But before Jake was building products, he wasn't really sure that was going to be his career. It's certainly what he had envisaged for himself. Well, one of the big ahas was realizing that I liked designing software because it was something I had been doing since I was a kid and I just thought it was fun. You know, I had a program called HyperCard on, it was on every Mac and I used to make games using this software. This is like in the late 80s and then the early 90s. And I started making web pages when that became a thing you could do. And all this stuff, I just was like interested in it. But I thought of myself as an artist, as an art person. So I went to college. I majored in painting, although I had dropped out of that program and just did this general art degree. And all along on the side, I'm doing odd jobs and doing contracting, doing web design. But I never thought of this as like my career. So a big turning point for me was when I realized, oh, wait a second, like actually think it's okay to say I'm really into the software design thing and I might not be an artist with a capital A, but like I really like building products. As I found out when I got into it, I also really like the business part of it. It's fascinating to me. Coming from a painting background, one of the first insights Jake had was that he was a little bit of an outsider. Yet that outside perspective, while initially it made him feel isolated, over time he discovered it was actually a strength and a principle that he would apply to all his work. Leveraging diverse thinking, perspectives, and voices can actually lead us to extraordinary results. Even though I was working as a designer or product person, that I would always feel like a bit of an outsider. And I never quite fit. I didn't fit in art school, but I also didn't fit in the software world. And one of the things that was weird about me that I finally realized I just, again, needed to embrace was that I loved process. I was fascinated by the way that we built the products and seeing all the ways that it could be made better. And so at first, it was the first few years, it was just a matter of me trying to understand and catch up because I felt like an outsider and I don't know what I'm doing. Eventually, it became looking at that stuff and seeing where I thought it could be improved and made better and then trying to do the things to make it better. Yeah, one of the things I really enjoy about you is you really live this stuff. It's not like you go to work and do it. It's like you. It's just every, everything about <laughs> yeah. you is like 
you've always run these tiny little experiments almost on yourself about simple things like your phone. You don't have your email on your phone. Like, yeah. How many people have that out there? Like nobody. <laughs> yeah. Right? I wish more people would try it because I think it's transformative. If you're listening right now, try deleting the email app from your phone just for a day. It's amazing. You can survive without email on your phone. You can always install it if you need to have to check or send something and just delete it again. But it frees my attention. But yes, things like that. I am obsessive about trying to see where's a default setting in my life that I've just sort of taken for granted and kind of question it and experiment to make it better. Yeah. And it's amazing, right? Like I had this similar experience with me. Like I would very frustrated at the end of most weeks, feeling like I didn't get stuff done. You know, who feels accomplished at the end of their week? And that was a real problem for me. You know, so I started trying to apply some of this thinking where I'd say 80% of the time I want to feel accomplished at the end of the week. And I started thinking about what were some of the things that were stopping me from achieving that outcome. And I was like jotting down behaviors that helped me achieve it, jotting down behaviors that held me back. And invariably for me, one of the first things that came up was social media. Like what a time sink. Yeah. Anytime my phone beeped, I just find my way to look at what was on the phone and then magically find my way to Facebook or whatever it was. Yeah. yeah. 10 minutes of troweling down there. It's like, <laughs> yeah. you know, and a huge breakthrough for me was deleting it from my phone, yeah. right? Because it made the behavior really hard to do. Right. Right. You get on the phone. I'd still try to find it, but it wasn't there. And then that 10 minutes, I suddenly get it back because I'm doing something else with that 10 minutes. Right. You know, and yeah. the power of compound interest. Is there a greater force in the universe? I still don't know. <laughs> but making time, and this is, again, what I loved about your more recent book, is like people being really deliberate about how you spend your time and thinking about it. And I think that's another thing that really jumps out to me about you, about how you set yourself up for success. You're really deliberate about what you're doing. So how do you sort of figure that out? And how do you find out the things that are holding you back? Well, it feels funny to talk about it right now because as you and I were talking just before we started recording, and I actually feel like in this little period of my life I'm in right now, these last few months, like I have to figure it out over again. Like there's things going on that make me need to sort of re-experiment and reassess and try to get this rowboat upright again. I feel like it's upside down and I'm just trying to not drown. But throughout my life, it's been this series of trying to figure out at the given moment the defaults that I needed to question. And I think that for me, I I don't think this is so unusual. Sometimes things just like aggravate me, but maybe I, I get more aggravated than other people. I get more frustrated either with myself or with what's going on. And it might be that I'm sitting in, I was, you know, working on some product and I'm sitting in a meeting, whether it's at Microsoft or Google or whatever. And I just feel like, oh God, I feel like we're wasting our time. Like we're just talking around the big issue. We're just burning up the day. And, you know, sometimes it might be, as you described, like if I'm, I tweet something and then I'm like sort of obsessively looking at like, did people, did they respond or did they like it, you know? And, and then I hate myself because I'm asking those questions and it's just like the self-loathing. Like Everyone's then, doing it, yeah, Jake, don't worry. Right, and then I look back at the end of the day and I'm like, why didn't I do the one thing that was the most important thing to do today? And like, oh God, like, well, in the afternoon I had this huge crater of time when I was just sort of emotionally like and sapping my energy because of the tweet. That stuff aggravates me so much. I just feel so frustrated with it that I've, I've wanted to make it better. And in terms of turning points, actually, like just coming back to that theme, I think one of the things that drives that aggravation or that 
almost desperation for me is this when you, you became a dad recently, when my oldest son was born, I just remember being like, oh, wow, like all of a sudden it changes the way you think about time. Oh, massive. Yeah. And literally like my father passed away three years ago. And I just like that, those moments of real life where you are reminded how fleeting it is and how precious and how in the essence it is just each moment. And that I often am robbing myself of those moments because the way I'm doing my work is sort of not thoughtful or the way that I'm spending my time or my energy in the moment is not thoughtful. And so I just kind of out of, as a desperate human, as a sort of fragile human, I just want to like take that stuff back. Well, I think like a lot of people can resonate with what you're saying there. You know, I think, but what you're really great at is you're very aware of outcomes that you want by trying to spend your time well, whether that's with family, whether that's with work, you're thinking about it. And you're consciously then looking, what are the things holding me back from achieving that and starting to tackle some of them? And I think that's deliberate, right? It might be intuitive to you. And I think many people feel these feelings, but they don't know what to do about it. So what are some of the small little hacks you use to, when you recognize this frustration in yourself or things aren't working or your default settings might be questionable, what are some of the steps you take to try and start figuring out, well, what do you need to tweak? I recently had a realization, which is that a lot of the way I look at the world goes back to HyperCard, which is this program I used. I started using it maybe in middle school and all through high school. And I even managed to use it, even though it was a dying program, I still used it at my first job at Oakley Sunglasses. I made a tool to like sort of automatically produce web pages with this thing. And it was a very simple coding tool. The code was The syntax was very plain English, easy to use. What I realized recently was that this idea of having code is just so deeply ingrained into my thinking because I'd been doing it from back then. I don't write code now, but it just is like set into my brain that you can see things as a procedural sequence of events. And just as there's code for software or web page, there's code for a day. There's code for a meeting. There are a sequence of things that happen. A lot of times nobody wrote the code. It just happens like it's just sort of organically congeals. But if you treat it like code and you make a list and you look at what happened, then you can debug it. And so I think that's one of the differences in the way I look at things is that I'm always kind of trying to figure out where was the bug? Where did the error occur? And could I fix that code? Could I apply the script of things that happened? A powerful way to think about this in maybe more human terms or slightly more normal terms is a checklist. Like, is there a checklist of activities that happened? Or to think of the calendar and the ways calendars dominate our lives, but there are also an opportunity. There are canvas that we can design. So if I more intentionally structure the sequence of activities that happens on my calendar, rather than just saying yes or no, sort of blindly and letting things congeal, It's just this thing of designing versus congealing or debugging the code versus just like hoping for the best. Yeah. And there's some really nice principles you're applying there as well. Like you're gathering data and reviewing the data, right? To make the behavior aware to yourself to say, are these behaviors I want to do or not do? Are these helping me or not helping me? Um, Is things being inflicted on me or can I have some sort of, (laughs) not not, not necessarily full control, but at least a preemptor 
or be proactive about where I want to spend my time and where I want to invest. And reflection seems to be a huge thing for you as well, like looking about what's happening and then seeing how that's going to inform what you're going to do differently next time. Yeah. And I guess the part that is always hard for me is that the reflecting thing, I rarely feel masterful while figuring this stuff out. Like the reflecting part, the reviewing the data, when we describe it that way, it sounds really great. It sounds really smart, but doing it sucks because that means you're really trying to acknowledge like, how did I screw up? And then then like looking at the screw up and then trying to figure out what was the root of the screw up. And a lot of times the roots of the screw up are like things that I don't want to admit I can't do. So like with the design sprint process, a lot of it was admitting as the lead designer on this project, if I just go with my expertise and intuition and come up with the best design I can come up with, that's not good enough. I need to do something else to make it better because my expertise is not enough for us to succeed. My product sense on its own is not enough. And that process sucks. And it only comes from like doing it and thinking that you're good and maybe even getting external feedback that you're good, but honestly evaluating it and saying it could be a lot better and it's not acceptable. Yeah, this is such a huge point for me as well. I think you've got to own it, right? When things don't work out, you've got to own a lot of these things. And That hurts a little bit. It does. Yeah. People talk about failure being great. And for me, it's not great. It hurts. So this isn't always like a joyful, (laughs) fun process to me. (laughs) I just can't not do it sometimes. Yeah, it's tough. I think one of the exec camps I ran was for the leadership team at JFK Airport, right? And we were trying to redesign how the airport operated super pumped yeah, gonna have yeah. Them, yeah we took over like an abandoned business lounge that they had in the airport and set up this sort of war room where we were like designing experiments and then the exec team would literally go out into the hallways and lounges yeah. and areas of the airport and try and run these experiments and this see what's so cool it sounds cool yeah. right i was like this is going to be the coolest yeah. thing ever <laughs> it was a pretty disaster <laughs> you know it just didn't work and so many of the things i thought would work for us some of them actually really worked against us. We were asking people to do things that were very unfamiliar to them. I thought, like, who wouldn't want to just jump out and speak to a customer in the main lobby of an airport where you're working there? Like, yeah. for some people, it was super uncomfortable. And I didn't set them up for success to make the most out of those opportunities. And it's a real tough learning for me. I remember sitting on the plane, flying back. My initial reaction was, it was those people. You know, (laughs) why didn't they want to talk to customers? (laughs) But then when I really like, really thought about it, I didn't set them up for success. That was a tough thing to take away, but it helped me improve the way I did it in the future. And I think that's one of those tough things about figuring these things out, right? You got to be own it. Yeah. You got to be a little humble about it. You got to look at yourself more than maybe you want to. And I think it's helpful to, to, acknowledge that it doesn't feel good because I have talked to you. I have a podcast and uh, as well. And on our podcast, we were interviewing Kevin Rose, who's a very successful entrepreneur and investor. And we're talking to him about failure. And he was saying like, failure doesn't, it doesn't bother him. He sees it as like a, a learning and a data point. And I was really like, cross-examining him because I'm like, really? Are you just kind of putting sunshine on the outside of it? Are you, but I could tell actually after asking him questions about for a while, really for him, it doesn't hurt. 
it's learning. He's being sincere about that. And a lot of times I think we hear from these people who are very successful, who are wired or whatever in such a way where failure doesn't hurt them the way it hurts the rest of us emotionally. And maybe there's just a more evolved or sophisticated letting go of the ego kind of thing that they're able to do. But for me, it hurts. And I think it's actually kind of helpful to know that doing some of this stuff might not feel good. Because when we do it and it doesn't feel good, and then like our natural inclination as humans is to avoid pain because it's sort of how you survive. And so you want to not do that thing that hurts. And I think it makes us talk about failure differently than we act. I think it's important to acknowledge how much of a bummer it is on the micro level of I wasted my afternoon and on the macro level of I spent five years building a product that was slowly tanking and no longer exists, which I've also done. (laughs) Yeah, Yeah, let's let's all congratulate ourselves on doing (laughs) that numerous times. (laughs) Yeah, it's such a point, right? Because I think so much of the narrative of our industry is I woke up one morning, I went for a jog. And then suddenly I created a unicorn. (laughs) Oh, yeah, no, we failed along the way once. Uh, It was this very, very (laughs) menial thing that didn't really matter. But yeah, yeah. And I think it's great to call out that it is a narrative that needs to be debunked, right? And a lot of this stuff is hard work and recognizing things aren't going to work. I'm sure the first design sprint you did was absolutely perfect, right? Like like a dream. (laughs) Looking back on it. It is amazing that it worked as well as it did because the code is so much different (laughs) from the code that I ran after doing it for, you know, three, four years and experimenting on it. The first one was 30 or so people on day one. And that sounds like a jungle. It was crazy. But I was used to running these sort of brainstorm or design thinking kinds of workshops. And we did that at a really large scale. And so that was what I was familiar with. So I thought, well, what I'm going to do is kind of combine some of the things I know from that, where you bring people together, because that's a powerful tool to bring people together with some structure. And But then what we're missing is this quiet alone time where people can execute. And so after that, I'm going to get a small group and it was maybe four designers, a product manager, a smaller group. And for the rest of the week, we're each going to work on building our own prototype of the thing. And so that was too long. To, I now would say that's too long to invest in the prototype before you test it. And that's too many people to have in the beginning. And there are all kinds of problems with that first one. But the fundamental part that worked was this idea that you get a bunch of perspectives and a lot of information to boot up on, and then you have competing ideas. And when you have a competition of ideas and people are able to put some thought behind them, your chances of success do go way up because four of them can fail if the fifth one is strong. And that is what happened in the first sprint. Like I said, it's a miracle, but there was a idea that came out of that. It was this designer named Jason Cornwall. It was for Gmail and it was a small thing, but it was in Gmail for a really long time. It was this contact information that would show up on the right of the message. If you were looking at an email, you'd see the person's contact details on the right. Yeah. And that came out of the very first design sprint. And actually, unlike everything I'd ever seen in any brainstorm where people were doing a group brainstorm and like shouting things out, that actually was built, made it into the product and was a big part of the product for like a decade, but a lot of mistakes to get there. And also... 10 years of mistaken processes to get <laughs> to that, that point. <laughs> yeah, yeah, which is also important. Well, look, I think what's even interesting as you share these stories is the things that you're sharing, as I hear them, is you're focusing much more on these principles, like creating groups of cross-functional people yeah, to come yeah, together, right. like building feedback mechanisms in. 
And I think what's always very interesting is when you really start to understand the principles of things, practices change to the context that you're in. Uh, you'll try a different practice here, or maybe we'll do crazy eights, or maybe we'll do this design thing here. But I know what I'm trying to do is get people to share their ideas, democratize them, diversify them, and then let's find out what we're going to do next. And I think it's an interesting thing for people to understand about how when you focus on principles like that and you understand them, which for some people takes 20 years of mistakes for it yeah, to really yeah. float in, you're able to sort of be a little bit more, well, you can sort of, let's try this practice here. Maybe this practice might work here. Because what I know I'm trying to do is get customer feedback. So when you think about the evolution, even for yourself, about design sprints from one to who knows what we're up to now. Like, yeah. I, do you even know how many you're up to at this stage? <laughs> I don't, but for over 200, probably for me and for the people who've done them out in the world, I mean, probably yeah, thousands or tens of thousands. Yeah. Right. So what were some of those like principles or those little aha moments that you saw in the evolution, even just your thinking? Well, sure. I mean, you talk about the idea of unlearning. And I think some of the things I had to first learn and then unlearn as a product designer, I had to learn the techniques and tools that would give me the confidence to create a design and then sort of lead the team through building and launching that design. And you have to have some self-confidence in your skill to get to that point. And so over the years of doing that and trying to get better and better at that craft, you're learning how to have confidence. And so one of the things with the design sprint, one of the principles and one of the big unlearnings for me is to say that other people on the team are as likely to have a strong solution as I am. And if I give them the right tools to put it into a form, one of the things that made me special as a designer was that I could put it into a form. And I had the confidence to put a sequence of those down and say, here's how it's going to work. Here's the plan. If I can give the other people the tools to do that, that one of them might beat me. And that's sort of an unlearning, but it's also like a principle that if we're better off, if we have multiple approaches and we don't assume up front that any one person is absolutely for sure going to be the best at it. That's an underlying principle that's huge here. We don't say that it would be better off spending this week just giving it to one person to deal with. So that's one of those principles. Another one of the principles is and again, this is something like as a person who's working with teams of people, one thing you have to learn how to do is to articulate and present your ideas and argue for your ideas and make sales pitches for your ideas. So I learn how to do that and get better and better at doing that. Well, one thing I had to sort of unlearn again, that's also a principle, is this idea that sales pitches are detrimental to our internal team workings because not everybody has the same sales pitch skills and the sales pitch might not be associated with the quality of the idea, the merit of the idea that's behind it. So if we allow sales pitches to come into our decision-making process or our idea sharing process, if we even allow an association with the person who came up with the idea, then we're letting in all these biases and we're letting skills that have nothing to do with the solution dictate which solution we choose. It's insane. So that's something, again, I had to unlearn. And again, I had to sort of back off of something I had gotten pretty good at, which is like pitching my idea. I had to say, I'm going to actually leave that and let 
the process go without me giving you my nice sales pitch, without me arguing for it, without me marketing it, without me getting the affiliation of this idea came from a designer. I'm the designer. You should respect it. I have to give all that stuff up in order for the outcome to be better. Yeah. And what's fantastic about this is it's so, for many people, counterintuitive to what they're told you have to do when you come up with ideas. You got to shape it. Right. You got to sell it. Yeah. You got to be advocating for it. You got to be competent at designing things and being great at showing them to people. And interestingly, that narrows your opportunity for success because, as you say, it's only one person's idea. It's only the best sales pitch. Like I see this massively in companies, the hippo effect, right? The highest paid person's opinion. Yeah. CEO walks into the room and says, well, we're going left when the whole team has spent three hours to saying why we should go right. And then simply because a CEO or the highest paid person's opinion or hippo makes a decision, everyone just, that's it. Right. None of this diversity of thought, none of these letting the best idea win rather than best individual. And that's a real challenge for a lot of companies. And even as someone facilitating these type of things, right? Like you get a dopamine hit when you create a great idea and everyone goes... I know how much you like totally. high fives. Yeah, Let's I do. Let's do some high yeah. fives, right? <laughs> you know, like it's a human emotion to get that hit. Yeah. But you're sort of stepping back from that to allow a great idea win rather than you or any of us as individuals win with our idea. And that's hard for people. So what really helped you like start to see that that was going to drive a better outcome rather Well, I think another one of these turning points, I don't know if I've ever told this story exactly before, but I worked on the project that became, it launched as Google Hangouts, which was a bit of an abomination of it, but eventually it's now this thing, Google Meet. So it's a business video chat, video conferencing tool. And it started as, it was a 20% project I was working on with a couple of other folks. It's one of the stories that I always tell about the origin of the Sprint is this week I spent together with them in Stockholm. They were based in the Stockholm office. And after we had been working on this thing for a couple of years and it just really wasn't going anywhere, we got together, we built a prototype and we just quickly decided what's a reasonable design, let's do it. And then once we got that prototype in people's hands, everything changed. The project had momentum, things were going in the right direction. And I could go from that looking back at it and say, in a design sprint, I want to recreate that week, right? So that was really great. But there's this other part of the story that I don't often tell, which is what happened in between that week and when I started doing design sprints. And it's me being a leader on this project as it's starting to gain some traction and momentum and eventually shifting off of Gmail to work on this full time and trying to come up with this really smart design, trying to use as the culmination of all my executive experience doing design and software companies and to come up with the perfect precious thing. We come up with it and the engineers start coding it. And then over the course of a few months, Engineers start coming to my desk and saying, hey, you know, this part of your design, (laughs) did you ever think about doing it this way? Or have you noticed this problem? Or like they basically had time and time again, really good points, really good issues to to the degree that I had to say, you know what, we need to like actually rewrite the code for huge parts of this. So I cost our team like a huge amount of trouble because I had tried to be the confident leader of the design, tried to just do it myself. And what I've realized and I really like 
pretty viscerally, pretty slap in the face realization was their approaches had merit and I should have found a way to involve them at the beginning. We should have chosen from everybody's solutions. There are more problems than just that with what went on. But that was a moment for me where I realized like, I mean, I didn't have the vocabulary to say unlearn, but that's something I need to unlearn is that just going my own way and being the one who can effectively pitch it isn't necessarily going to lead to the best outcome. So yeah, that was a big one. Yes. And they're great lessons though, right? And I think we, as you say, you've got to learn them to unlearn them in many ways, right? Like these are hard things to teach because especially when we're in environments where you know, it's competitive, right? You're surrounded by really great, talented people. You want to show your competency. You want to show what you got. Totally. You yeah. know, and so there's always this sort of double-edged sword to these things is, sure, you've got to bring your skills to bear, but if they overbear, we can get in these situations like you're sharing. You know, just like we're, think back to that sort of camp in JFK, you know, I, I was almost like, oh, well, I'm in a room with all these senior executives. I've got to like, show them that I know what I'm doing here. I got to put them in these places that challenge them. And in some respects, I over challenge people and that led to failure, you know, and I think trying to find those and it's a tough because it's a tension point, right? There is no here is the line, right? And for different people, some people need to be pushed. Some people need to be pulled. Some people need support to get there. And, you know, when you're in a room with sometimes with 30 people, you know, obviously a little bit less now. Yeah. But, you know, there's a lot of dynamics happening. Right. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. yeah. But there's a lot of dynamics there, you know, and I think it's just sort of recognizing that and being intentional and knowing where people are at or what you need. You know, that takes another thing you love to say as well. Reps. Right. It takes reps. Yeah to build that competency actually to know when to push to pull when to lead when to step back yeah Um, and i think all i've learned is that you've got to do the reps you've got to keep experimenting and trying to improve but you've got to own when it's not worked and when it's been on you yeah and i think you know one of the motivations to write books or to share ideas like this is that hopefully other people don't have to go through so many reps <laughs> of, you know, doing things in a painful way before yeah. they figure it out and they can benefit from all my stupid mistakes. Yeah, I, I always uh, say uh, <laughs> the gift is to make better mistakes than the mistake we <laughs> yeah, make. Yeah, right. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. So hopefully there are much improved mistakes for the next generation. The thing actually you brought up about executives is interesting, the highest paid person, because One thing that I thought I learned as I was building products was that I wanted so much for the leaders to listen to our team and to listen to me in particular, you know, (laughs) but to listen to our team, right? Let's try to be generous to me. It was was probably about me, but maybe the whole team. And the thing is that, so sort of the ideal becomes we're going to democratically decide what we should do and we're just going to vote on it and whoever gets the most votes. But Something that, again, I sort of had to unlearn as I got to the situation where I was working, I think the combination of working more closely with people who were in those leadership roles, whether that was startup founders or people at Google, or being in those situations myself sometimes, that I started to gain both more like respect for why they were in those positions of making decisions and also some empathy for them. Just a little bit of an understanding about it's so hard to make those decisions. So something that they've learned to do is to come in and just like make the call, right? But you could help them do a better job of that. You could help them set them up for more success 
if you can offer them a lot of good alternatives and give them the input of the team before they make their decision. So I think another part of this for me was kind of unlearning the total resistance to that executive, her or him making the call on what we're going to do. And instead kind of saying like, okay, well, we're going to try to set up a situation where that person does make the call, but we just set her up for success. We give her all the tools that would make it the best possible decision, the best possible outcome. And in fact, give them a learning experience so that their decisions are even better in the future. I think that's great, you know, because One of the things that always stands out for me, especially even with this design sprint context, it's all about making great decisions. Like how can we make people make a great decision? And so much of these methods and tools are just designed to help that person who deliberately, I know you always call out the decider, help them decide, help them make a great decision. And I think that's a really powerful intent of that process. Yeah, but it, it wasn't there from the start. In the beginning, it was more about making it this sort of egalitarian, like sort of this democratic process. And that was something that I had to unlearn through the process of doing it, which was like, actually, it is all about, in the end, if it's about the organization, it has to be about the decider. It has to be about making them, putting them in the position where they're going to make a good call and recognizing that it's very hard to be a leader. It's very hard to be a founder or an executive. And it's a lot of pressure on you. And you might know that those decisions have long lasting implications on what your team's going to be doing, long lasting, maybe on the business. And you know that you might fail. So that's going to make you more conservative. It's going to make you trust your gut sometimes when you shouldn't. So, yeah. Great. So rolling forward now, you know, what are some of the things you're excited about? The things I'm excited about is that you're writing a sci-fi novel. So I want to know (laughs) how that's going. Well, overall, what are the things that you're looking forward to? Yeah, I am looking forward to finishing the journey of writing the sci-fi novel. I'm honest. (laughs) I'm honest enough about my writing abilities or the limits of my writing abilities to say that this may not end up being a book that is on every bookshelf in America, but it's a really good learning experience for me to try to do something that it's fun for me to do something that I don't know how to do and to try to figure it out. So I'm enjoying that just like kind of going back to scratch and looking at the books I love. I love sci-fi, but it's actually a very small number of sci-fi books that I like, if that makes sense. Yep. And so looking at those and trying to dissect just as you would look at a product that's been successful and say, yep. what is it about this that makes it work? When What's the thing I can do that's true to me, but that also builds on what they've done and the, the patterns that I've found appealing to me in the past? That's a fun process and exciting. And I've got a terrible first draft that doesn't even make sense. If you read it from end to end, you wouldn't even know what was going on. And there's no ending. It's a disaster. But it's a first draft. I'm starting on the second draft. So I'm... I'm getting to that point where the project will eventually be completed and I'll be satisfied at having done it. And we'll see what happens with that. We'll see if you ever get to read it, Barry. I don't know. Well, look, what I really enjoy is that you're still living these principles, right? You're getting uncomfortable. You're trying yeah. things that will help you to grow. You know, you're still prototyping, writing a process. Like I can't think writing a book is a product and doing a terrible first version is getting your first prototype <laughs> right. done and right. iterating it as right. much as you can, you know? So um, it's exciting to see that you still continue to challenge yourself and use the principles that have made you successful to continue, hopefully, 
I'm sure the book's going to be fun to read no matter what. You can always draw pictures. I can always draw pictures. Pictures are always a good way. And I use that in Sprint. I use that in Make Time. It's a good way to draw attention away from what's That's what 10 be more pages mediocre. right there. Yeah. And it might be, if the writing might be mediocre, but it just makes it faster to get through it for the reader. Nobody complains when there's illustrations, you know? <laughs> Never. Listen, it's been a pleasure to have you on the show. Thanks very much. Oh, thanks so much for having me, Barry. It's fun. Awesome.